welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. Today on the show, I have Heather Hansen, lawyer and partner at Martha McCarthy & Co. Heather is a known and respected lawyer in the field of family law, and I brought her on the show to specifically talk about family law and its impact on business owners, specifically around times of marriage and separation, and to debunk a number of myths around what happens in both instances. And with that, here's my interview with Heather. Good morning, Heather. Morning. Thank you for taking the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, My pleasure. So... Heather Hansen of Martha McCarthy & Co. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. What it is you do? So I am a family lawyer. I practice in Ontario. I'm a certified specialist in family law. And what that means is that it occupies the totality of my practice. I've been practicing for just over 12 years now. And one of the areas that I've developed a specialty in is the intersection of family law and business and how uh, particularly business owners are impacted during a separation process. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, at first when people see family law, they may wonder what the connection is, but yeah, when, uh, when, when the separation happens, oh my goodness, does the business come into play heavily? Yeah. And it's one of those moving parts. Family law is a, is an area that like, just to start to frame our discussion, the, the system and the legislation was set up in a way that is intended and quite rightly accommodates the vast majority of Canadian citizens. So it's set up to create quite a formulaic outcome for people who are, for example, T4 employees of a large corporation, who have very straightforward income, and who have generally very straightforward an RRSP or a pension or or a single home. And the challenge, and I, I'm sure we'll we'll get into it in more detail, but the challenge in a in a broad stroke way for business owners is that the system doesn't necessarily correspond with how they operate their businesses and some of the the challenges with dealing with value and other considerations if they're confronted with a separation. And so there's a bit of a unfortunately for many business owners, there's this immediate disconnect between how they, they've operated and run their business and how they now have to account for that to their, their former spouse. Like so many things uh, you know, in law, you can't think through every possible permutation, but this is a pretty gaping one. So one of the things that I often tell business owners, because they have a hard time wrapping their heads around it sometimes, because they're used to contract law and, and everything else, because just this, that's part of the normal course of events and being a business owner is they often start looking at the situation with their spouse with the same lens. And I tell them off the bat, they need to stop immediately because what a lot of them don't realize is that what most people don't realize is that for lack of a better term, family law is like the trump card that basically trounces all other law out there. So whatever you may think you have in terms of contract law, if it's not in line with what the family law act says, you may as well just tear it up because the family law act is going to take precedent over that. Would you say that's generally correct? Well, I think that there is a tension in law, in family law, between, and it it has come out over the years and developed in the case law around parties' ability to freely contract, okay? And ability to freely contract in the right circumstances is generally upheld. And this concept that you're talking about, this idea that 
the family law system is inherently one that is preoccupied with protecting vulnerable parties and ensuring that uh, recipient spouses have sort of a fair shake at the table. And so how that translates often on a practical level is the things we would normally want to accomplish in traditional contract law, they're not available because again, broadly speaking, does sort of place this larger gaze over any contractor and evaluate it through the lens of fairness. And that's very challenging because in the commercial context, most people enter into negotiations with parties who are like-minded with comparable levels of sophistication, and they're um, entitled to contract as they wish, provided that they're dealing in good faith. And so that's a, a different paradigm in family law, for sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to say, like, caveat emptor is not a thing here, <laughs> right? So it's not that's, buyer beware. Right. Actually, yeah. it's, it's actually, it's specifically rejected. Like, it's a specific concept that we, um, that the courts have said that notwithstanding, even if a contract was entered into freely with proper legal advice and with the benefit of what's called full financial disclosure. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Even under those circumstances, there are some very limited circumstances where a contract can be set aside in its totality because it is what's called not in substantive compliance with the Divorce Act. Now, those are few and far between, and I don't want to discourage people because part of my pitch on this podcast is going to be that people should consult often and early with family lawyers, particularly with in their corporate life. And there are things that we can do and there are, there are strategies and there's um, approaches that we can do, but it is limited. Fair enough. So let's, uh, there's two very big scenarios or big life events. Hopefully only one life event happens to most people, but there's two big life events that uh, we want to tackle. And one, one is what happens when business owners get divorced, which is hopefully the one we all avoid. But let's start there. So how does a divorce for a business owner differ from say just a regular conventional employee? So in a lot of ways. So I think that I'm going to just start at the beginning of the family law framework because it's critically important to understand. And it's often one of the first things that a shareholder worries about when they're sitting in my office. So the first, just in terms of understanding the framework of family law in Ontario, we have what's called a title-based system. So in other jurisdictions there, um, or historically in Ontario, even this concept of a community of property would, uh, would exist. In Ontario, Assets are based on title. So if you own the asset, it is your asset. You don't have a legal obligation to give your spouse a portion of the physical or actual asset. What arises based on your respective net worths is an obligation under the legislation to share the growth in value that accumulates during marriage. And that's subject to some exclusions and deductions that are it's too detailed for this, this discussion. But the idea is that if you're a shareholder in a corporation, for example, your ownership interest in that corporation, you do not share and you will not be placed in a position where you are required to transfer a portion of your shareholder interest to the spouse. You may have to pay something on account of the value of that interest, but you don't have to give that interest. And that idea, that idea that title governs is important for a lot of shareholders because it governs not just their relationship with their spouse, but many people have other shareholders within their their entity and they're worried about the impact on other shareholders and they're worried about the ability to continue to to maintain their ongoing operations. So the reason I start with title, it's always good to begin Uh at the beginning, is because many business owners during the lifespan of their business will take steps that impair their ability to sort of control free title on separation. And let me just give you a few examples. It's very 
common for tax or corporate planning strategies to make your spouse a shareholder within a corporation. Okay. Mm -hmm. What you're doing when you do that is you are giving your spouse an ownership interest. And that ownership interest is a corporate relationship that is separate from your family law obligations. You don't get to take it back on separation. You have given it. Another example is parties, depending on the life cycle of their business, will also often receive tax or estate planning advice to give effect to what's called an estate freeze. And in doing so, they may issue a new class of shares to a new group of shareholders, and that may impact your ability to, again, value the business on block or your ability to deal with the asset on separation. Another one that I... That's an estate freeze situation whereby, say, the trust owns the shares and the original share owner is not a beneficiary. I mean, I've right. seen we can their estate freezes can be pulled off where you know there's third party trustees and the estate freeze is done and, and that person is a is a beneficiary. But in cases where just you know my spouse and kids are the beneficiary, hey, I can't circumvent the fact that they have a right to that. And you've given it away, right? Like you've given yeah. away the the value that goes into the trust. And so that has an impact in family law. I have lots of lots of clients who come into my office and they say, oh, well, we did an estate freeze and I gifted all the common shares to my three kids and they're sitting in there and that's where all the value is. And my preference shares uh, have a nominal redemption value. And then we're into a dispute sometimes with adult children about value, division, a whole bunch of complicated things. And so Mm. generally speaking, my advice to people when they come and they have a consultation when they're thinking about doing estate or tax planning is... Your estate and tax planning should come first and it should take the priority, right? Because the family law, if and when there's very little, again, coming back to how we open this discussion, there's not much we can do other than what's called a marriage contract in some circumstances. And Which we'll get to, but yeah. <laughs> the midst of that, um, that too. But it's, it, the reason I say it is mostly just to, I think your question, how is it different? And these are examples of how it is different and it can be very different. The other way that it's different for business owners is on what's called the disclosure and the valuation piece. So once we've figured out this mess that can be title, who owns what, then we all have to deal with valuation. There is, although there is a definition of property under the Family Law Act, there is no definition of value and for good reason. So value does not equal fair market value and value does not necessarily equal some prior indicator of value, for example, a prior sale or a prior transaction. And any business owner will tell you that the only true indicator of value is a transaction at the time in question. So any person who is obliged under the Family Law Act to crystallize value on what is called the date of separation and impress a value at that time, they are confronted with the behemoth that is valuing an interest in a privately held corporation. And that is a very challenging exercise in the best of circumstances, let alone when you have a spouse who has an interest in value being as high as possible. And so I can answer questions about disclosure, but it's a major challenge, particularly if you're in a minority position within a corporation. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I want to touch on a couple of things you mentioned there. One, going back to like the the estate planning and tax planning, you know, it's one of those things where you can only make a decision based on the facts to time. And Mm -hmm. assuming the marriage is on solid footing, and everything looks good right now, then, hey, you know what? The tax planning and all that looks good. But, you know, you can, a marriage can deteriorate after 40 years, right? You can't, 
you don't know for sure how it's going to pan out, but you do what's best. Like in financial planning, you have to do what's best for you at the time without trying to pin yourself down too much. Uh, the valuation piece is, yes, a tricky one. Uh, in fact, uh, for those of you who want to hear more about that, go back to episode 20, where I spoke to Melanie Russell about this right. very topic. And the other thing, too, is and when you look at when you look at statistics on business owner bankruptcy, divorce is one of the biggest issues surrounding that because like a business is not a liquid asset, right? You know, unless you're you're just flush with cash in this business, right? I've literally had countless divorce cases where business gets valued. The operating spouse basically looks at the valuation and says, if she wants to buy it or he wants to buy it for that price, they can go ahead because there's no way it's worth that. But now you're in an impasse because at the end of the day, that person is entitled to maybe up to 50% of it, depending on the, the fact pattern of the, of the marriage. And that obligation is typically not held by, you know, typically the spouse wants their money. And a lot of times it's just some sort of loan or payout arrangement that comes up between them. And if the business runs into trouble, boom, bankruptcy happens. Yeah. And I know having a divorce lawyer on your podcast is a lot of doom and gloom, but there's some strategies on reality. I call it reality. Look at statistics. (laughs) A certain percentage of listeners are going to have that happen. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the constructive things that come out of those problems because, and again, like just one more problem before we start talking about solutions. So, you know, is what we, um, what divorce lawyers call the golden goose problem, which is just building on this concept that you're talking about, that a business is a value is impressed on the business, but you can't sleep in your shares. Your shares don't like you, you can't cash them out. There may not be an interested buyer. You may, so this asset that has value for most business owners is also the asset that generates income for support purposes. And so the consequence of demanding an equalization payment, meaning a payment on account of the value of the business, is that you might kill the good golden goose. Like you might find yourself in a situation that the capital yeah. injection you receive forces the sale of the business. And then you have no support because often people who are entrepreneurs enter into business because of the income generating abilities as much as the value of the underlying asset, right? So that's like a, a big problem. So let me talk about some of the things that we do as family lawyers when parties are like-minded or cooperative, if they're not- We can talk about what happens when they're not afterwards. Yes, we'll talk about, that's what I was saying to say. If they're not, they can come and talk to me and I'll, I'll litigate their case for them. But in the vast majority of our cases, even though I have a pretty active litigation practice in this area, because sometimes disputes just require a judge, separate from that, the vast majority of these cases are, are negotiated and, then, and there's a negotiated outcome. So let's talk about some of the tools that we have when we have this golden goose problem or we have a valuation problem, it's essentially an inability to create a liquidity event to make the equalization payment. So some spouses, recipient spouses, will agree to a deferred equalization payment subject to proper security. So for example, we give them some security in the form of sometimes a share pledge, sometimes some sort of escrow agreement, and they agree to defer their capital payment or to take the capital over time. Another option that some recipient spouses will agree to is family law is a, again, it's a very point in time analysis when it comes to division of property. So we equalize assets on the date of separation. For some spouses who are recipients through a negotiated outcome, they may decide that actually it's better to stay in business with their spouse, right? And so they may agree to not only defer an equalization payment, they may agree to waive an equalization payment for an ownership or um, like a non-control position in the corporation. So a ride along, right? So they get the benefit down 
code. And then they also get the benefit of the income stream. Sometimes we'll do a combination deals where a spouse, a business that has value, real value is the income generating ability of that business. Like that's where the real value is. And so sometimes spouses will agree to, again, defer or discount their equalization payment in consideration of a much higher support payment in the short term. So there's all sorts of tools that we can use. The problem is, is that all of those tools require a willing and active recipient spouse to negotiate. And absent that willingness, what a court does is a court fixes value at a specific date and orders judgment. Yeah. Right? And that doesn't help a business owner. It can be very problematic. Yeah. I mean, and, and as for the entire notion of having the court assign one, that's never a good position to be in. The last thing you want, you, you lose all control, right? Like it's now yeah. completely out of your hands and a third party decides it and that's the end of it. So, I mean, it really, so I think we addressed that pretty well. It comes down to the valuation of the business, the, you know, the income generation of the business. Now let, let's get to a stickier subject surrounding this. What happens when some of that income from the business may not be fully reported, which is not uncommon in various mm. cash business industries. I've, I've often had spouses come to me and say, well, I know what the business, the business is worth something, but they're in renovations, construction, you know, just to pick on those mm-hmm. areas. Mm-hmm. Is it all truly reflected? Okay. So again, just in terms of the baskets that we deal with in family law, there's what's called division of property, which is that where we, we turn our attention to like the value of the business and your obligation to equalize. The other piece, which we've touched on a little bit, is this idea of support. And support is child support and spousal support. And those types of support are based on income. And yep. income, you're quite right. It's uh, not just by what is reported on your income tax return or what's reported necessarily in the net income of the corporation. There are many circumstances where unreported income or, importantly, expenses that a business owner runs through the business. That's a lot more common. Like we see cash business, we see unreported income, and it does come up more often than not a business owner in that position where they have cash income is going to be mutually invested in doing a deal, right? Like early mm-hmm. and be yep. able to negotiate <laughs> acknowledging as fast that. As possible. Let's get this as out of the way. As fast as possible, right? And I yep. see that, like we see that a lot. What's really the challenge is somebody who is a small business owner who runs significant expenses through their business. You know, I'll give people an insurance, somebody who's in the insurance industry. I had a case a few years ago and they had a condo in Miami that they completely expensed through the business. And it was an extraordinarily expensive operating expense for the business. And I was on for the, the wife in that case, but the husband, like his position was, I have it, here's my client list. Here's my referral base. I use it for hosting. And like, there was this whole debate about whether that had a personal or a business element to it for support purposes, because any expense that's run through the business will be added back and grossed up for support purposes. So you yeah. can put yourself in a position where your income for support purposes might even be higher than the gross income of the corporation, depending on like if it's a professional services firm, for example. Yeah. So before anyone gets these smart ideas about buying condos Miami, because they're listening to this, let's just be clear. <laughs> personal use gets added back to income. So yes, when people come point. to me and say, should I buy this car or whatever it is in the business? I'm like, look, it's kind of irrelevant. If the money's there, great. That's where you can buy it. But end of the day, you're still going to pay taxes on personal use. So yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And that's, so, the, that's the issue. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things that uh, it's just a high level, let's, let's just go back and let's sum a couple of things up. One thing we didn't mention is, again, we, you mentioned exemptions briefly. So someone gets divorced, there's a division of assets 
And then there is income support and child support, kind of like three different buckets. There is some flexibility negotiation between the first two. But one of the things people don't realize when they come into these things is that is the marital exemption, right? So can you explain, like, if I come into a marriage, I'm worth, we'll call it $2 million, and the other person's worth one, and down the road, we get separated and the total's four. What does that look like from a division of assets level? Yeah, so... And this is also another really good example of where having a family law advisor, when you're thinking about getting married, can be very helpful when you're a business owner. So the calculation of net worth under the Family Law Act, which is this number that we reach. And then if your number is bigger than your spouse's number, you owe a payment, a cash payment to equalize. Okay. That calculation is subject to two adjustments. The first adjustment is what's called the date of marriage deduction, okay? And if you think about it intuitively, the legislation says that parties only share in the growth of their net worth acquired during the marriage. So if you have an asset on the date of marriage and you can establish the value of that asset, that is forever a deduction from the calculation of your net worth. So if on the date of separation, you're worth $10, but you brought $2 into the marriage, your obligation is to equalize only the $8 that accumulated during the marriage, for example. Mm -hmm. And for business owners, again, when we come back to this valuation proposition, it is sometimes in their interest at the time of marriage to crystallize value or to have their spouse agree to the value on the date of marriage. So at the bare minimum, they have protected and and preserved that date of marriage deduction for all time. So that can be very useful. Mm -hmm. that sometimes just to be super practical about it, it's like not worth the effort. And again, to your point, you do what's right for you at the time and you deal with the problems down the road. But it's something that I would want to have a conversation with, with a business owner in a perfect world prior to a marriage, especially Mm -hmm. if the business is a going concern with a significant value. So like a professional services firm or something like that, not so, but you know, if you've got a going concern industry-based business, I would want to have that discussion. Well, it's smart. I mean, it eliminates the ambiguity 20 years down the road. Like, okay, what was this really worth? And and little little planning tip. And one thing that I don't tell my clients I do when they're getting married, it's like, oh yeah, when's the wedding day? Oh, that's great. And then I set a task for my assistants to run a statement on that date and, and keep that in arrears just that way. Yeah, because I mean- Exactly. Right. Because I mean, you know, systems change. I'm, you know, advisors migrate companies, whatever it is. I don't know if I'm going to be in 20 years. Right. But I'd probably still be in this business somewhere. But having that kind of tentpole right there, just basically saying, hey, here's the sheet. This is what you're worth on that day. It's already saved me once or twice or saved the client once or twice. And and in that regard, even if you don't, for example, have get it, get as far as your spouse agreeing to a value by way of a contract, I agree with you completely. Like just actually doing a clear accounting of what your assets are and making sure that yeah. you've got, you know, at bare minimum, the year-end financial statement, like that you, yep. you've got it available and it's part of your calculation. If you've made any applications for lending or anything in that year and you've given it to third parties, like protect all those um, data points. Yep. Just back to the exclusions because it-, it, it Yeah, let's finish that point up. It's a very- complicated area of law, uh, the relationship between date of marriage deductions and exclusions. And this comes also to when business owners should be having a conversation with a family lawyer, even as just part of their estate planning, not necessarily because a separation is imminent. So the other category of adjustments to the calculation of net worth is this idea that if you receive during the marriage a gift or inheritance, and so the definition of a gift is you receive something without consideration, and an inheritance is obviously something bequeathed to you or that you receive through death when someone doesn't have a will. 
So if you receive those assets during the marriage and two qualifications, there you go. continues to exist at the date of separation and, or it is not the matrimonial home at the date of separation, which we'll get to there, which we'll get to, <laughs> then you're entitled to exclude the value of that. One of the key distinctions between a date of marriage deduction and an exclusion is that the value of a date of marriage deduction exists for all time. So you do not need to retain the asset at the date of separation. Okay. The challenge with the date of marriage deduction, which is intuitive, but it is a challenge, is that unless you have a contract, you're obliged to share in the growth. Okay. An exclusion is when you, where exclusions crop up for people is mostly in estate planning where a business owner, like a matriarch or a patriarch starts gifting to children. And then those children start getting married. Okay. Yeah. Having larger claims within the family constellation, like intergenerational challenges, which can be also another good time for a discussion about the necessity of a marriage contract or the utility Mm -hmm. of we're going to come into marriage contracts very soon, but yeah. we're, we've been we've been sliding into it from many angles. Yeah. So yeah, so it's you know it's interesting. I often this happens all the time. The inheritance gets paid out, and the first thing people say is, "Look, I want to pay off the family home, the mortgage." And I say, "Well, let's explain how this works." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not making a comment on your marriage, but should it ever dissolve, here's the reality of it. So first off, I mean, I always coach people that if you're going to start using this to basically live a more elaborate lifestyle, eh, you're opening up the door to that other person potentially having claim. And if you're going to use it, if you're going to spend it, then it's gone. But especially in a family home, let's talk about what happens. Why is the family home different? Because we've kind of worked around it a couple of times. Why is it different in the case of family law? So under the Family Law Act, there's a separate section of the legislation that deals solely with the matrimonial home. And just from, again, a high level policy perspective, coming back to the system is set up to protect 90, 95 percent of the population for Mm -hmm. most people, their primary residence and matrimonial home, because by the way, you can have more than one matrimonial home, but your matrimonial home slash primary residence for the vast majority of Canadians is a single home. And it's often their most valuable asset, right? And so the legislation has created a bunch of exceptions to treat that asset as a shared asset, regardless of how people organize around it. Okay. And it's, a kind of a hot topic in family law. There's lots of um, family lawyers who think that that's wrong and unfair because of some of these things like inheritances going in. And I'll I'll go back to that. And then there's a lot of people, particularly people concerned with the feminization of poverty and making sure that people have a fair shake on separation who actually think that that it's a good policy. But basically what it is, is that if you, the definition of matrimonial home is a home that you ordinarily occupy during your marriage at the date of separation. So again, you can have more than one. So your cottage in Muskoka that you go to all summer and your house in uh, Oakville, those two things can be matrimonial homes at the same time. Okay. But if it meets the definition of fam- of matrimonial home under the legislation, two things happen. First, you lose your ability to deduct the assets. So if it's a home that you brought into the marriage, you lose your date of marriage deduction. And that is a critical like miscommunication to the Canadian public that people do not understand. Mm-hmm. They're told, or they understand if they do a basic Google search, that you only share in the growth of the value of net worth, except if it's your money. Yes, yeah, so big asterisks there, right? Like, right, and it's a I own a house asterisk. fully paid for, for whatever reason, spouse moves in, Guess what? 50% up for grabs now. And you're out of luck. And so that 
by and large, like just in terms of practice, and and I know we keep we're gonna we're edging up to the marriage. It's the next thing. It's the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> but but by and large, I would say ninety percent of marriage contracts that I do are simple single issue contracts to protect money that is going into mat homes. Okay, so either protecting it because it was an asset they brought into the marriage, or and this is the sort of second qualification. And you mentioned it briefly that if you receive a gift or inheritance and you put that into the matrimonial home, even though the law in other circumstances does provide for what's called tracing. So if you receive an inheritance and then you put it in a bank account and then you buy some stocks, if you can prove a straight line, but although the law will recognize this idea that if you receive a gift or inheritance, if that asset changes sort of color or character during the relationship, if you can still prove the sort of existence of the exclusion. So for example, you receive an inheritance in the form of cash, you put that cash into an account, you then purchase stocks and you can prove, and the proving of that is a a whole other podcast, but you can prove. Or a simple thing, just keep it as one separate account at all times and And separate bank account if you can. And that that makes it easy. That is the number one tip for sure, because of this exact problem. So that concept, so either, as you said, you've got a nice tidy bow wrapped around your exclusion because you've kept it in a single account, or you're capable of tracing it, the exclusion still survives provided the asset exists on the date of separation. The critical exemption to that is if the thing that you have put your money into is the matrimonial home or the thing that you received by way of gift and inheritance is the matrimony home. So the biggest and most problematic example of that is a child receives a cottage, right? So a child, a parent dies, a child receives a cottage, that cottage was a gift received or an inheritance received, but then it becomes a matrimonial home, okay? And so that, again, it's not necessarily a business owner issue, but it's a it's a it's it's an issue that crops up in the context of, of these types of exclusions and how Sometimes when we're contracting around these issues, those are things that we commonly sort of turn our our, our minds to. Makes perfect sense. So let's talk about uh, what we've been kicking around for a while, which is the concept of a marriage contract, or more affectionately known by the general population as the da 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 prenup. The prenup. So the prenup, and I can't tell you there is. I can. I'm sure you're familiar with this, but. There is no contract I've ever come across that has more misconceptions about what it can and can't do. Yeah than the quote unquote prenup. And, and let's also, let's just, just just clear up one thing quickly. Prenup, meaning prenuptial, which is just a reference to timing, doesn't have to be before, right? That is correct. That so is correct. we can have a postnup. So the bottom line is, is that that's why the term marriage contract works so much nicer. It doesn't have the negative connotations and it also doesn't have a timing thing affixed to it, but you can do this after you're married too. So- You can also, just to add one more wrinkle, or benefit, you can also enter into a domestic contract that is not in contemplation or during a marriage. So for parties right. who yeah. have it. And so there's another whole separate basket of legal risk and obligation that arrives um, through cohabitation that you can also, in some circumstances, contract about. Yeah. And one thing we didn't cover, and we should probably talk about this quickly, is, is that when does the law consider you married for common law purposes, right? So that is for tax purposes, 12 months, and everybody always thinks about that. For income support under the Ontario Family Act, three years. However, if you're like having kids or doing other things that basically look like you're fully married, that number may just go out the window, right? Yeah. So just on in terms of like broad stroke education yep. in Ontario, okay, 
married people, people who are legally married and Mm -hmm. unmarried people who cohabit for a continuous period of three years or have children. Okay. So they Mm -hmm. cohabit for an uninterrupted three years or they have children. Those people treated the same with respect to custody and access issues, spousal support and child support. Okay. Mm -hmm. The only area where there is a legal distinction between married and unmarried people is division of property. Okay. What the law has said is that you, in order to have access to part one of the family law act and equalization of net family property, you must be married. And people have tried to attack that proposition in a bunch of different ways over the years. And the courts have, have quite strongly upheld that principle that only married people get that calculation of net family property. But marriage contract discussion, you can still have a cohab to deal with some of the issues that arise when people are cohabiting. Excellent. So basically, let's talk about the process of what is required when putting together one of these contracts. So what has to be brought to the table? What is different from from normal? There's one difference that I'm spoon feeding you on this one that absolutely has to be followed uh, that is different from a normal contract. So in a family law contract, there's what's called forcibility and validity. Okay. So Mm -hmm. in a family law contract for it to meet the definition of a domestic contract, it needs to meet all of the sort of essential validity requirements. So it needs to be signed by both parties. It needs to be witnessed and it needs to be dated. But all of that doesn't matter if it's not an enforceable contract. So what we're really uh-huh. talking about is if you are in a dispute with your spouse at the time of separation and you want to rely on the terms of the contract, what are the things that the contract needs to have? Okay. And there's three key ones. But the most important one over and time and time again is this concept of independent legal advice. That's the one. So let's just talk about the three sort of magic keys to an enforceable contract. So, and people often conflate those things. So you can have a valid contract that's Mm -hmm. the formal requirements, but that's garbage if it doesn't have these three other things. Okay. Exactly. Other things are independent legal advice, meaning that both parties, but particularly the party who's giving up rights has had the benefit of a full dialogue with a family lawyer about the legal issues, rights, and obligations that exist under the contract. Okay. The second one, which is also, it is different than um, many commercial contracts, is you have an obligation to provide what's called full financial disclosure. And if you think about it just in, in concept about what these contracts are doing, these contracts are fundamentally a contract where one party who's a power holder is asking somebody else to give something up in the future. Uh And so in the most basic, if you're talking about this idea of family law being preoccupied with fairness, a spouse who's going to give something up needs to know what it is they're giving up, right? Like just in the most basic terms, you got to understand is that you're giving up before you can give it up. And so except for the most extraordinary circumstances where like the value of the asset is irrelevant, if someone's worth $25 million or $35 million and they're asking for an exclusion for all time and they're exclusion for all time, arguably like that, whether it's 25 or $35 million doesn't make a material difference. But if you're asking, for example, to exclude your business interest for all time, it's pretty important that the spouse understands what the value is of the thing that they're giving up or what the potential growth would be. So this concept of financial disclosure is very important. And then the last one, particularly in the context of marriage contracts, where a marriage is imminent is the absence of duress or the absence of pressure. Okay. Uh So that's a very complicated area of law. And like, just to give an example, like when you, you mentioned that 
these contracts are, are, there is no other area of law where contracts are more frequently misunderstood or misinterpreted. In the last, of the last five superior court trials that I've conducted, three of them, and one that was supposed to start during the pan, right before the pandemic hit, three of them, and then the one that I have on the books to start, which is a six-week trial, a six-week trial dealing with valuation of business issues and a marriage contract, okay, they are attacking the validity of contracts, okay, marriage contracts. So marriage contracts are commonly attacked on the basis of absence of financial disclosure, the presence of duress, or the spouse who was giving up the interest did so without the benefit of legal advice. Which is a big one because oftentimes people try to cheap out on this by saying, well, you know, I just, we only need one lawyer. And I'm like, don't even start. That paperwork will just be shredded the second it's it gets garbage. challenged. Yeah. It's, garbage. it's garbage. And the thing is, is that people are often frustrated by the process that I force them to go through when they're entering into these contracts. They'll be like, why do I have to meet you three times? Why does she need to go to the lawyer three times? Why is this contract costing me 10 You want it to work. <laughs> you want it to work. And also... Like, think about the value of the assets we're trying to protect, right? There is a proportionality yeah. analysis about, like, if we're trying to protect something that's very significant, it's in your interest to invest the time and money to make sure that you're able to do that. Right? As I always tell everybody when they say, I want X to be quick and cheap, I'm like, you know, the words quick and cheap and family law never go together, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. just just strike those first two words because yeah. put the opposite up because that is the difference, okay? But yeah. it's valuable for reasons. So. One key area I want to talk about is misconceptions about what these things will do. And yes. yeah, there are some cases with exceedingly wealthy people where unequal distribution of assets is not going to impair the person's ability to sustain themselves. But for the rest of us humble beings, the reality is, is that I've, you know, I've oftentimes sat down with people and they said like, oh yeah, I got a marriage contract. I got, you know, protection on my real estate properties or my business, uh, both the, the base value and forever. And I'm just like, that's an interesting concept. Can you tell me how that works? Yeah, so so my marriage contract mantra, if you will, is to keep them as simple as possible and to do as little as possible in the contract. For the many of the reasons that you're just talking about, people will come to me with their shopping list and say, these are all the things I want this contract to do. And the more opportunities you give within a contract to create challenges, the harder you're going to, it's going to be at the end of the line to uphold it. So Really, I think what your question is more about is what what are the sort of common forms of these types of contracts? Well, I I think the one I'm getting at is the, we went into this and now it's forever. It's going to be what's mine is mine. What's theirs is theirs. The growth is is each person's and that's the end of it. There's going to be no splitting of anything. So those contracts, so that type of contract, which is what's called a full separate and apart contract, meaning title will govern for all time and there will be no sharing. It's a full contracting out of the family law regime. Those contracts are appropriate for the following groups of people and only these people. Two independently wealthy people coming into a marriage with complete independent wealth who wish to maintain that wealth. So movie stars, rock stars, very rich people. So no question of being able to live with that lifestyle should they separate. Yeah, like that, that whole thing. Okay. The second class of people who I commonly see entering into separate and apart contracts are people who are in their second or third marriage, right? Mm-hmm. Where state planning or other purposes, notwithstanding the fact that there may be a disparity between them, they're at an age and stage where they're more concerned with protecting their existing wealth for future generations than sharing it with their spouse. So we're not really talking about someone who got divorced at 25 and has been remarried to 30. Like that's, that's not this no. category. We're talking about later stage in life, 60, 70, whatever it might be, right? Yeah, I'm talking about a widow in his 60s marrying a woman who's been married once before, who both are tapping into their retirement assets and have yeah. adult 
children who they're helping like that. Right. Yeah. And in that case, I mean, they both reached the finish line financially, yeah. right? Like they're, right. they're able to retire. So similar principle, right? Like it's that we can support ourselves individually, mm-hmm. but we can also support ourselves together. So in which case there's not an imbalance there, right? So, let's, right. so, so those are the only two scenarios. Those now, are generally, generally now the third scenario where, which is, again, this is a bit falls into the rock star and movie star category. Okay. Is when a party as a result of the vast size of their wealth, okay, wishes to have a full separate and apart as to property contract. But what they're prepared to do in exchange for that is to essentially give consideration for that, right? So A, you're never going to get anything from me. We're never going to share the value of our business. We're never going to share the growth. I'm never going to do any of that. But if we separate after 10 years, I'll give you 10 million bucks, right? Whatever. You'll, you'll be well taken care of, but you ain't touching this. That's like, right. And so when somebody has the luxury of essentially picking a number that will for all time be satisfactory, like some huge big number like that. And where we see that often is with intergenerational wealth, right? So when we see mm-hmm. a family, like a multi-generation business, that's very, very large. And, you know, the complications and challenges that all we've been discussing would be so monumental for the family that just having sort of a clean bake great contract with very significant, yeah. sometimes we see them. Yeah. But other than those three circumstances, we don't usually do those types of contracts. There's it's another kind of contract that we do. But that said, more often than not, not I will say more often than not, on countless occasions, I have seen that. I have seen that done for for the for average average business owners, average consumers, someone who's got one rental property and case in mind, and I'm not going to name you, but you know who you are, gets married. He's in his late twenties, early thirties. And he's like, yeah, no, I got two rental properties. You know, I got the principal. I've all, I've got what I came in with and I've got it forever. And I'm just like, that's just not going to work. That's garbage. Like it's actually, it does more harm than good. So there is a class of excluded assets under the family law act that deals with things like what we've touched on gifts and inheritances. So one of the easiest, and when I say easy, I mean, the most straightforward way to create a contract that protects some things is to expand the definition of what is an excluded asset. So for example, you can say that the parties wish to exclude the matrimonial home or the parties wish to exclude my business interest or sometimes the interest in the trust or whatever it is. And so you create a class of assets that is excluded. Now that creates a whole other set of problems because then what some people do is they use their class of assets to shelter all of their assets, right? So they, mm-hmm. they, they'll say, well, corporation ABC will be an excluded asset, but then they hold all of their corporate, like they hold their house. Yeah. Everything's there. Yeah. And so that undermines that, that objective as well. So if what you're doing is trying to create a class of excluded assets, it has to actually be for the specific purpose of protecting that specific asset, not as a vehicle to create further exclusions. And that's the one we see most commonly, to be honest. We see people wanting to- I'll play the shell game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They want to, they, we see people wanting to, to, the most common example of where a marriage contract is of value to a business owner is when, for example, they are a- one third shareholder in a going concern business with a shareholders agreement with two other shareholders. And 
the business is new and uh, difficult to value and is also a primary income generating tool. And in those circumstances, having your ownership interest in that business falling within the class of excluded assets will allow you to not have to uh, share that value on separation. The elephant in the room with respect to these types of exclusions is that, and many of your listeners will be familiar with this concept, there is no contract without what is called consideration. So you don't get for nothing. And the higher the degree of what you're asking to exclude, the more the lawyer for the recipient spouse will be asking for you to embed some consideration into the contract. So I say to you, oh yes, let's create a class of excluded assets. You better be prepared to give your future spouse a house, an investment portfolio, or something in consideration to represent some fair dealing as between the two of you. And that is often where these contracts fall down because someone will say to me, well, I want a creative class of excluded assets. And then it gets sent over to the lawyer on the other side and they say, why would she ever do this? What is the reason that she would enter into this contract? And you need to be able to provide something in consideration. And that can be very challenging, especially for young couples. And it's interesting too, because it's almost as if someone comes into it from, I've seen this happen before, someone comes into it from like the standpoint of, well, I'm just trying to protect what's mine. And then they're just like, they feel like they're suddenly being asked to negotiate something. Well, don't you realize, you know, and I think the conversation usually goes to, I don't think you realize that when you started this, you started a negotiation, right? Like you may see it as protection, but no, now you're asking that what you really did was a negotiation. So that's where we are. So before we wrap up, any last tips for what to consider when putting together a, a spousal agreement? Yes, two short tips. So these contracts take an extraordinarily long time to negotiate. Okay. Mm -hmm. Way that just because we're wrapping up, I won't spend an hour talking to you about all the complex reasons they take so long. All you just need to give me is they take, they are the hardest and longest ones. And so you need to start early. If you're going to even explore this issue, you have to start like, don't come to me two months before your wedding date and say that you want to explore a contract. By the way, if you do that, we do have some tools to assist. We have contracts called standstill agreements that allow parties to go ahead and get married and then enter into the negotiation at a later date, but those have their own warts on them. So start early is my number one tip, okay? And then also be prepared to invest time and money in the process. And most importantly, be prepared to have the process fail because The negotiation of a marriage contract, okay, coming back full circle to what you said, which I think is really great advice, Jason, that you have to make financial decisions at the time based on what's best for you. And we cannot always control the future events. And just in terms of being human beings, not divorce lawyers, nothing upsets me more than people, you know, I've seen relationships end because they couldn't negotiate a marriage contract. There's a lot of problems that we can solve in the event of a separation. And yes, There are lots of cases where people are unhappy at the end of their separation because of the financial outcome. But by and large, that's not the case. By and large, we work it out and we get people to where they need to be, even if they don't have a marriage contract. So many people are very preoccupied with it being a a requirement. It's not a requirement. I would frame them as nice to have, not have to have for the vast, vast, vast majority of Canadians. And in some, for many Canadians, not only is it not nice to have, it's unnecessary or problematic. So my advice is go into the process with an open mind, start early, be prepared to invest the time and energy into it and be prepared and willing to abandon the project if it seems to be more problem than it's worth. 
So Heather, thank you very much for your time. Can you uh, let us know where people can find you? Yes. So my website is mccarthyco.ca. My email address is heather at mccarthyco.ca, M-C-C-A-R-T-H-Y-C-O.ca. <laughs> and you can Google me. I'm, I'm a, I, have a, I have a web presence, a Twitter account, um, and you can follow me on Twitter. And I, I occasionally post updates about things that are going on in family law. So maybe I'll see you there. Yeah, unlike uh, many of the other us and many of us in personal finance, you don't get involved in contentious debates. <laughs> no, I do not. I stay. <laughs> You're a very prudent lawyer. I'm a pretty vanilla Twitter uh, participant, but I will occasionally post interesting legal bites or uh, significant cases and you know stuff like that. I can keep people in the loop. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Very much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So that was my interview with Heather Hansen. I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope the one thing you took away yet again is that proper advice is required in moments when you need them in life. And one of those moments is around marriage. Should there be imbalances as we discussed earlier? And if you're a business owner, that's even more important. So as always, I'm Jason Pereira, and this has been Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever your podcast. It does help people find us, and I truly do appreciate it. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you. 